Good morning, Mosaic. We're reading from Nehemiah 7 through 14, 6, 1 through 3. When Senballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashodites heard that the repairs of the walls of Jerusalem were going so well, the breaks in the walls were being fixed. They were absolutely furious. They put their hands together and decided to fight against Jerusalem and create as much trouble as they could. We countered with prayer to our God and set round-the-clock guard against them. But soon, word was going around in Judea. The builders were pooped. The rubbish piles up. We were in over our heads. We can't build this wall. And all this time, our enemies were saying, they won't know what hit them. Before they know it, we'll be at their throats, killing them right and left. That will put a stop to the work. The Jews who were their neighbors kept reporting, they have us surrounded. They're going to attack. If we heard it once, we've heard it ten times. So I stationed armed guards at the most vulnerable places of the wall and assigned people by families with their swords, lances, and bows. After looking things over, I stood up and spoke to the nobles, officials, and everyone else. Don't be afraid of them. Put your minds on the master. Great and awesome, and then fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When Sembalat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there are no more breaks in it, even though I hadn't yet installed gates, Sembalat and Geshem sent this message. Come, meet with us at Kephram in the Valley of Ono. I knew they were scheming to hurt me, so I sent messengers back with this. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Why should, why should the work come to a standstill just so I can come down to see you? This is God's word. Yeah, good morning and welcome. As you can see, we're in the middle of a series called Unshakable. We're looking at how the gospel can enable us to live unshakable lives in shakable times, and we're doing that through the lens of a life of a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah actually did something extraordinary in his lifetime, and we're going to take a look at that in specific today. And uh, one thing real quick before we get going next week, uh, in keeping with the theme of this series, we're going to do something actually really great. You're going to hear one of the most incredible true stories you've ever heard, and one that'll likely make you cry. Bring a tear to your eye, you're going to be hearing all about Pastor Brett and his incredible True Life International Rescue Mission and how he brought his daughter home. So uh, each week is a great week to be here, right, yes, Uh, but next week will be a particularly great weekend to invite a friend to hear that true story. It's going to be great. So here we go. Uh, If uh, you're new to the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a Jewish man who lived around 450 BC and he was... A Jew who actually grew up in, not Jerusalem, but the Persian Empire because his city and his country had been conquered and destroyed by the Babylonian Empire and he grew up in a foreign land and one day his heart, we saw, was broken when he got news from how things were going 
back home, so to speak, in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah grew up in, in, in Persia. He grew up and he worked in the king's palace, though. And when his heart was broken, he risked it all. And he risked his life to try and go and do what had never been done before. And realistically, to do something that really didn't happen in ancient times. He wanted to rebuild a city and a culture that had been wiped out. And last week we saw him, he moved back home, he he sort of relocated internationally. He inspired the first stages of the rebuilding program to get going. And this week we find out that we see that against all odds, he does it. And not only does he get the wall built, but he does it in record time. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. In other words, hear this. He solves a hundred-year-old problem in under two months. Not bad, huh? How did he do it? How did he accomplish something that no one in generations past had been able to do? It's it's actually, as we're going to see, I hope, stunning and freeing. How did he do what no one said was possible and what everyone said could not be done? How can we do the same? Three things we're going to see in the passage. First, we're going to see he harnessed something to he ignored someone. And finally, he stood somewhere. Let's begin here in number one. And again, last week we saw that the work on the wall around Jerusalem began to take place. And by the way, this wall has nothing to do with that wall, right? Uh, you know, the wall on the news everyone's talking about. This wall was the kind of a thing that every city of significance had in ancient times because it enabled ancient cities to be just that. It enabled them to be significant. See, a wall in ancient times is really something more like what we consider our, our current you know, uh, interstate and city highway system to be. It, it fundamentally enabled economic growth and residential construction it helped people get jobs and homes, right? And say, and have lives. And that's the point of what Nehemiah was doing. He was trying to jumpstart an economy and a culture, and he did it in 52 days. And that would be like, I mean, starting on New Year's Day of this year and solving a hundred year old problem by last Tuesday. Hmm. How did he do it? Well, if you blink, you'll miss it, but almost every commentator I could find points this out. Let's see if you can catch it. In the next verse, who does this incredible rebuilding? Who does it? He says, so I station armed guards. I assigned people by families. After looking things over, I stood up and spoke to the nobles, officials, and everyone else. All right. So he mentions families, right? Includes moms, dads, kids, anyone old enough to hold, you know, a trowel or a sword. And he mentions nobles, officials. And then who else does he mention? And everyone else. Yeah. Who rebuilds the nation? He calls them everyone else. Now the translation says the rest of the people, which means, of course, who is not rebuilding this? Oh, who isn't? The experts. The experts aren't, there are no building experts here, no big time contractors, no army corps of engineers, just the rest of the folks, right? How did he, what was his secret? Here's his secret. And here, the secret of how he built is actually the same secret of how we build incredible lives ourselves. Here it is. Nehemiah 
harnessed the power of the ordinary. He harnessed the power of the ordinary. He harnessed the power of ordinary, everyday people. And together, working highly ordinarily, they did something extraordinary. No one person built a wall by themselves. No one family got the east side or the west side or the south side rebuilt. Right? It was ordinary person by ordinary person by ordinary family by ordinary family. Each one doing something ordinary day in and day out. The same thing over and over again. That's how the wall got rebuilt. And what's extraordinary about these people is actually just their average, ordinary nothingness in a way. It's almost boring how average and ordinary these people are. And I think this is such a powerful truth. I think this is such a freeing truth. I think this truth, the power of the ordinary, is at the bottom of just about every great thing in our lives. Harnessing, I'm going to submit this to you, harnessing the power of the ordinary is what can change your life and can change the world. And this concept is actually... Something Carrie and I have been talking about quite a bit. It began with a story that we saw not too long ago from uh, the great pastor and great theologian, a man by the name of Eugene Peterson. And he's actually most well known for doing a beautiful modern translation of the Bible called The Message. And we saw this interview with Eugene Peterson, and he was talking about where the idea for the message translation came from. And he said he was he was pastoring just this small church in this small town in Maryland. And he felt uh, one day that the people in his church, although they loved God, really had a hard time understanding the Bible. And so Eugene Peterson took what he had, which was just a background in ancient languages and Bible translation, and he began to work on translating just one book of the Bible, the book of Galatians, into modern language that people could really grasp. And he said when he did that and when he gave it out, whew, it was like an electric current went through his church. And then he kept going on from there, book by book by book, until he finished the New Testament and then later the Old Testament. And he looked up one day and he found that someone actually wanted to publish it. And they did. And it became an international bestseller that's impacted millions of lives. And it's the one we actually read from just a few moments ago. And at the end of the interview, this was, is my favorite part, he was asked, why did you do this? Did you ever think this would be something that impacted the world? And he said, no, I did it because all I wanted to do was to love my church. I want to love my church. And therefore, in the end, what did he do? Well, here's what he did. He did something extraordinary for the world by doing something loving for the people around him. That's what he did. He did something extraordinary for the world by doing something just highly ordinary and loving for the people around him. He harnessed the power of the ordinary, and that's what was extraordinary and is extraordinary about him. How about you? Have you learned to do this yet, huh? Have I? Have we? Well, because in contrast to the world's way, right, which says go big or go home. The message of Nehemiah is, go home and be small. And in your smallness, find 
kingdom greatness. In contrast to the world's way, which says get a bigger platform, right? You're going to need a bigger boat. The message of Nehemiah is build a better foundation. The world says the outside matters. Nehemiah says it's what's inside your everyday life, which has the power to change it all brick by boring brick by boring brick. In contrast to the world's way, which says get it all now or you're nothing. Nehemiah's just start laying brick. Uh, be a lifetime bricklayer. Each day is a brick. You get to choose where to put it. See, in contrast in the way of the human heart, which says, look at me and look at us, and tries to build the Tower of Babel to satisfy the lust of the human heart for personal glory, the message of Nehemiah is, go home and build something great for someone else. He says, remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, sisters, family, for the person next to you. Nehemiah says, my ordinariness beats your extraordinariness every time in the end. And I love this. I love this because it's such an antidote, frankly, to to two things in our modern culture. First, this is an antidote to our modern celebrity culture that even gets into the church. And I think that lots of non-Christians find that a turnoff, frankly. You know, I'm all for conferences and speakers. I mean, I hope you go, I go. I love to listen and learn and get something new, and I hope you do too. But at a certain point, man, if that conference or idea or speaker isn't about helping people in their everyday lives harness the power of the ordinary and love one another, I question if what they're saying is something I really want to pull into my life. And second, this is an antidote, not just to modern celebrity culture, but our modern internet culture, which in many ways makes us feel like celebrities, right? Whether it's true or not, because the internet makes us feel like we're holding up this electric, invisible megaphone to our mouths, right? And, and that megaphone that many of the t- much of the time we think is super loud... I think is really unplugged in the back. That is, what we say doesn't go nearly as far as we think it does. And I think that far more than impacting anybody on the other side of the world, what we say and what we post actually impacts the people next to us far more. And isn't that actually encouraging? Isn't that actually encouraging? No one here thinks that's encouraging. Fine. I'm the only one. Right. All right. Great. No worries. We get so caught up in what is the world saying? Are those people thinking? Are those people saying? You know, we forget to ask, what about the people next to me? What about the people in my community group or church? How are their lives? And listen, this isn't to take anything away from going on trips and you ought to go around the world and start new stuff. But you notice where the Great Commission begins. It's in your own hometown with the people next to you. And so I'm telling you today what Carrie and I say to one another, that we can do something extraordinary for the world by doing something ordinary and loving for one another. Today, if you are married, you are doing something extraordinary for the world just by staying married, by being faithful to your spouse in an era where marriages crumble and people are calling it quits and give up all the time. If you're single, you're doing something extraordinary for the world by living an ordinary life of trusting God every day instead of giving into the message that says YOLO, right? 
get it now. But then you live with the regret of that, right? The ordinary work of daily reading your Bible and praying with your kids and doing great work at your job, prioritizing a local church, that's where the, ec- the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Or to quote Eugene Peterson, what changes the world is a long obedience in the same direction. Okay. What a great thought. Let me tell you, your community group today, it's so ordinary. Some of you are saying, I know that. You don't have to tell me that. It's so ordinary. It's extraordinary. Listen, you love kids and M-kids today. You serve on Sunday morning teams. It's so ordinary. It's extraordinary. You mentor a kid at Live Oak. Oh, it's so ordinary because you think, what can 30 minutes in the life of a kid do? Listen, I'll tell you the answer to that question because I know. The kid I mentor there couldn't read at grade level four years ago, was on track to becoming a statistic, right? In our country, if you're poor, you're a minority, and no dad, not a recipe for future success, unfortunately, right? But now, four years later, after hard work from his teachers and reading with them week in and week out, he's reading near the top of his class. He's acting in his school play. Listen, it's so ordinary, week in and week out, you can't even see it, but it becomes extraordinary in the long run. And if you want proof, this is the Bible's message. Ask the question, what did Jesus Christ do for the first 30 years of his life? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing extraordinary. Yeah. The vast majority of his life, he spent being, vast majority, spent being totally ordinary, building chairs, making tables as a carpenter, serving his mother, raising his siblings. And yeah, he had that little flash of brilliance at age 12, right? But if you were just passing through his hometown and you asked, man, who's voted most likely to succeed here? It would not have been him. 20. 25, 30, still living at home. Talk about failure to launch, right? I mean, (laughs) living an ordinary life, but trusting God to do something great with his ordinariness, and he did. See, the message of Nehemiah is, in the end, ordinary wins. The ordinary becomes the extraordinary. And a group of ordinary people, a group, right? Nondescript. That's who we're talking about today. So, How did Nehemiah do what no one else could do, not by getting fancy? First, he just harnessed the power of the ordinary in people's lives. And because he did that, he did now, number two, what we also must do if we want to solve unsolvable problems in our life and culture, number two, he ignored someone. Give you a hint. It's not who you think. Let's take a look. The verse says, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, Ashdodites heard that repairs of the walls were going so well, the breaks in the wall were being fixed. They were absolutely furious. Let's ask, who are these guys? To quote Butch Cassidy, right? Who are these guys? Three of them, these three names keep coming up again, right? Two Jewish men and an Arab. And these men did everything possible to stop the work. They threatened the people, right? They threatened Nehemiah. They slandered him, accused him, death threats, ascribed bad motives to him. The question is, though, why? What's at stake here? That's got them all riled up. Why did it get so bad? I mean, why couldn't they just let the wall get built, right? Well, on one hand, you find out later, these were basically professional shakedown artists. They had some like, you know, little racket going on, some financial contracting they had. As long as the people were poor, 
made them in good shape. And so the only thing that could interrupt their little racket was if that wall got built. The wall got built, the people could prosper, and if the people prospered, then yeah, they could stand up to the bad guys. And that was bad enough on one hand. Some bad dudes coming through, threatening the people. Not good. But that's not all that's going on here. Because you should ask, if you haven't by now, why is this story, Nehemiah, in the Bible at all? Why is it in here? And as a matter of fact, when you come to any story in the Bible, you should always ask, why is this in here? And to get to that, you have to ask this question, what is at stake? What's at stake? Well, the answer here is, what's at stake is far more than a wall. What's at stake is far more than some families living in safety, although that's important too. What's at stake right here? Well, Who were these Jewish people at their essence? Oh, these people were the covenant people of God through whom God had promised to send who? A savior, right? A deliverer. He would be a Jewish savior for the whole world. God had promised that. And yet now here, where are these people? Oh, they're scattered, leaderless, hopeless, with no future, a few here, a few there, but scattered, dispersed, and in danger of being wiped out, and their light in the world going out, their future erased. And so see, if this wall doesn't go up, the people can't return, the city won't make it, the nation will be lost, and the Savior of the world can never come. And therefore, what we see now, but Nehemiah couldn't see them, is that he isn't just up against a wall. Sorry, no, no, the pun intended there. Nehemiah is actually up against, hear this, a pressure point in human history, a pressure point in redemptive history. And if his city isn't rebuilt, the Savior can't come down. There'll be no, no Jewish people left for the Savior to come through. And therefore, here is why the pressure gets so intense. That's why the voices get loud, the intimidation comes, the people feel so small, because just like God works in human history through human people, so God's great enemy works through people in human history. See, at every pressure point in the Bible in redemptive history through, for example, Pharaoh in Egypt, Goliath in the valley, Jezebel and Ahab in Elijah's day, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon a few years before this, and through Herod in the Roman Empire later. At every pressure point in redemptive history, the enemy is working to snuff out God's plan, and that's why the fighting gets fierce, or the babies get killed, or the people get taken as slaves. See, at every pressure point, at every place where God works to redeem the world and redeem lives, his people always experience... Some kind of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And now some of you are saying, really, the devil, right? We're talking about the devil. Is that what we're talking about today? I came to hear about the devil. Listen, to the majority of the world, quickly, the idea of Satan, right? Of demons, of a supernatural world, help them make sense of the world. If you go to Latin America... Africa, Asia, the idea of a dark supernatural realm is commonplace. So at least in the interest of not being culturally narrow and not looking down our nose 
is, at the rest of the world, we ought to consider what the Bible has claimed all along. There is a supernatural being called the devil, and that our real wrestling and fighting and big picture problems in life isn't against people alone. It's against dark supernatural powers. And by the way, this is not illogical to believe in. Because if you already believe there is a good and benevolent and powerful supernatural being named God, it's not illogical at all to believe there exist evil supernatural beings. It's actually more illogical to not believe those beings exist. See, there is a devil, the Bible says, who magnifies, amplifies, and complicates human evil behavior. And I think that's what Nehemiah is experiencing here. Through this pressure and through these threats, and I think, if that's true then, what also must be true is that some of us are facing that same kind of thing today. Because Nehemiah had to ignore not just the people's words, he had to ignore the words and the power of a spiritual, supernatural adversary, right? And some of you are facing threats and pressure in your life, and you're feeling all kind of opposition, and you don't know where it's coming from. You think, oh my God, all I'm trying to do is build a life, right? All I'm trying to do is build my business. All I'm trying to do is graduate, for crying out loud, right? All I want to do is get married, right? I mean, for crying out loud, God, seven billion people on the planet, right? I mean, one of them's got to be for me. The odds seem pretty good here, right? (laughs) But all these people, on one hand, all they're trying to do is just build a wall. But it's never just about the wall. And it's never just about your marriage or the business or the degree. There's always something more at stake behind the scenes. When I graduated from college, University of Houston, as you all know, I went immediately into campus ministry, and my first task in vocational ministry was to build a support team. Now, the reason you're not hearing some hooping and hollering from our, our, our campus staff today is because they're actually out at a student conference in Midland. All right, they'll be back next week. But uh, the support team is a team of people who would financially support uh, my ministry at the University uh, of Texas, actually. Uh, and so that was a really hard thing to do because all I wanted was for college students to come and know Jesus. But it was so difficult to complete that team I wanted to quit so badly, and at one point, after I'd been told no, over and over and over again, the rejection and the fear got so bad, and I couldn't see a way out, one day, I thought I had this actually really dark thought. I thought, maybe I should just end it all, and all my problems will go away, and all the people who said no to me will be at my funeral feeling terrible and guilty. (laughs) Yeah, and it was the ridiculousness of that thought which thankfully snapped me out of it, right? Now, I never had a thought like that before, and I really haven't had since. Why was that moment such a big deal? I was just a nobody. Well, soon after that, I did actually complete my team. By God's grace, I got on campus here at UT Austin. Within two years, there was a mini revival on campus, and lots of students uh, came to know Jesus, student after student. A number of them graduated, themselves went into vocational full-time ministry. Some of them still are today. Lots of them graduated, went on to go and do amazing things in life and all over the country and world, and some of them stayed in Austin. Some of them formed the early core of this church and some of them like this guy here is crazy enough to come on staff and work with me right years later 
What was at stake that dark day in that dark place? Oh, I don't know. Only a lot of people's futures. And therefore, a good bit, the story of this church. I can trace almost every good thing God's done through my life in vocational ministry to the simple act of completing that little $2,000 a month support team in 1998. See, a wall is never just a wall. A marriage is never just a marriage. A support team is never just a support team. And that's why the enemy gets so angry Just like these guys here. Because what were these guys really upset about? Oh, it tells you. Look, when they heard the repairs were going so well, what is it? That the breaks in the wall were being fixed. Oh, they were mad. What? That the breaks, that the breaches in the wall were being sealed. Why? Because when the breach is sealed, the enemy can't come through anymore. And when the breach is closed, the enemy has no power. And when the breach is closed, that's when God's redemption can come into the world. And can you see now, they weren't just building and fighting and praying and believing for themselves. They were fighting for you. They were fighting for us. They were fighting for the future. And today, no matter what you are facing, you're not just fighting for you. You're not. You're fighting for a future generation, your future marriage if you're single. You're fighting for your children if you have them. You are contending not for God's purposes just now, but to a generation yet unborn, though you can't see it. And even if Nehemiah doesn't know all the stuff he's fighting for, I believe he intuited there was some kind of spiritual warfare going on because what was his remedy, right? It wasn't just a sword alone, no. Not just a gun, not just a weapon. What did he say? He said, don't be afraid of them. He's recognizing the fear. He said, put your minds on the master and the master on your mind. Sorry, I couldn't help it. All right. It's right there for you. But your mind's on the master, great and awesome. See, spiritual warfare requires fighting differently. Remember who God is. He says, why? Because before they could ever win a battle in the natural, they had to win the battle in the the spirit. A supernatural victory over fear. And they had to fight that battle, it says, at the places they were most vulnerable. Which brings us now to the third incredible way he rebuilt a nation. He didn't just harness something or ignore someone to, to fix the vulnerable spot. Number three, it says he stood somewhere. And I love this because here in chapter six, the story is at its climax. The wall has almost been rebuilt, but there's still some gaps that haven't been closed where the gates will soon go up and the people have pushed back on an attack. The work's almost through and Nehemiah goes up on the wall to inspect it. And while he's up there, his enemies and critics try to lure him down by getting him to meet with them privately, right? They're going to make him an offer. He can't refuse, so to speak. And they know the only way to stop the work will be to lure him down personally and take him out. See, once the gates go up, 
the city safe. But he sees through the ruse, and this is what he says back to them. And these words that Nehemiah says here are my favorite words in the whole book. Look at what he says. He says in response to them, oh, it's fantastic. He says, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I love it. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. See, Nehemiah couldn't be bribed. He couldn't be bought. He couldn't be intimidated or corrupted. He got up on that wall and he wouldn't come down till the work was through and the gaps were closed and the gates were hung. And let me tell you why these words are so great and why these words are so powerful and why these words are words that we today as a local church today focused on making disciples in a multi-ethnic and multi-generational context, why we must say these words to each other. And here's why. It's because when we say these words to each other, to whatever force that's outside us, outside force in our culture that would want to divide us, when we say these same words to whatever person or critic with smooth words and a nice face, when we say these words to whatever thing tries to break our spirit or our will or our resistance, resolve to close gaps and breaches that have existed for generations. And when we say to that thing in that voice, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. We begin to be the Nehemiahs of our generation. We begin to become the thing the outside world desperately needs to see rebuilt. And we become the fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet said long ago in Isaiah 58. He says, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age old foundations You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And every time you turn your heart away from a fence today, and every time you refuse to let an accusation roll around in your head, and every time you pick up the phone and call that person who hurt you, and you seek to understand people that you never have before, you are rebuilding the ancient ruins. You are repairing the broken walls for all of us beautiful white people, all of us SPF 75 wearers in here today. I mean, just asking, asking, for example, one of your beautiful black brothers and sisters in Christ, why is Black History Month such a big deal to you, right? Just ask it, let it hang. That closes a gap, right? That begins to repair a breach. And I don't know about you, but I, I long in that way, in other ways, to live these words and to see these words become true, not just of Nehemiah, though it came true of him, but of us. And I don't just long to see it come true. I believe they can be true of us because of who, in the end, Nehemiah points us to. Oh, he points us to a greater repairer, a greater restorer, the ultimate breach healer, Jesus Christ. Because, hear me, on the afternoon, Jesus was crucified as he hung, not just between two criminals, but as he hung between heaven and earth, as he hung between and stood over the gap created in humanity by all the wickedness and perversion and rebellion of the human race, Jesus Christ was offered the same choice as Nehemiah, to come down from what he was rebuilding, come down off the cross, the leader said, come down off the cross if you're the son of God, if you really are him. Oh, but he didn't do it, did he? No, he stayed on the wall. He hung on the cross with love in his heart until the great work of the redemption of humanity was complete. And then he cried out, it is 
finished. Once his body was broken, then he came down. Oh, don't you love it? Our Savior didn't come down until the great work was done. And hear me now, either that work and that love and that sacrifice is good enough for us or it isn't. And I want to tell you today that I believe when he said it was finished, the work was finished. And what it means to be a Christian and a part of this church is now to throw yourself into the same great work and say those same words to whatever ordinary, extraordinary work God's called you to do in your life. And the ordinary, extraordinary work he's called us to do in this church means to say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. How can you apply this? Three ways quickly this morning. First, I want to encourage you. See today as a single ordinary brick. You get a choice of where to put it. One brick a day. You look up five years, 10 years, 15 years later, you got something great you're living in. Two, ask yourself this question about whatever you know God's called you to be a part of. Ask yourself, what's at stake if I don't do this? And watch the answers come. Watch the enemy's plan for your life be revealed. And number three, don't come down till the work is done.